Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today we have someone who has formed an amazing Primal company, one of which has tons of Primal Blueprint employee fans. And so we're bringing him on today. He's someone who you've probably seen all of his products out in the stores. It's a highly popular brand. Welcome Taro from foursigmatic.com. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. You have a really unique brand a unique journey, which is really all about using mushrooms to benefit one's health, one's mental clarity, ailments, etc., and really just delving into fungi and what it can do for us. Before we get into why mushrooms and you know all of those factors, I'd love to hear your story because I read that you pretty much were born in Finland and grew up on a farm and that you forage for mushrooms when you were really, really young. And so I would just love to hear your journey into really now you've made a life of mushrooms. Yeah, um, I live in LA and here uh, every time I meet someone, they're always astonished by my journey. But for a Nordic person, some of my story is very normal. So it's very common that Scandinavians or Nordic people would have um, grown up on foraging. So foraging for berries and edible mushrooms such as chanterelles and porcini and stuff like that. So I'm no different than what I'm a little bit different is that I'm a 13 generation family farmer and my mom taught physiology and anatomy. So I started studying human health as well and uh, health in general quite early on and went to an environmental school. And so that's the unique part. But I feel that almost every Nordic person would have done some basic foraging and, you know, mushroom and berry picking growing up. What then led you to take it a step further? Was there something you experienced with your own health? I mean, what was it that said, you know, I think there's something here? I often say that mushrooms chose me. I also feel a little bad sometimes talking about health because I meet all these amazing health experts and they have this very touching story where they've had a serious illness or an issue and they discovered all these health benefits. And me and our chef and our team, we always laugh that uh, we haven't had anything. Like I grew up showering in spring water. I've I'm not almost, I haven't been sick almost for 10 years once and I'm not really just, it's all been good. But I was passionate about nutrition, health and physical performance that I got to work with pro athletes, even Olympic athletes and models and whatnot really early on and their health. And at that point, mushrooms were just one thing. They were not special than anything else, but I got into like optimal human performance early on and started reading about that. And then about 12 years ago by accident, with a college friend, found a rare mushroom growing in Finland, and that kind of opened one Pandora's box. And then later, a few years later, discovered this category of medicinal mushrooms or primal mushrooms or whatever you want to <laughs> want to classify them. But uh, well, wait, re- re- rewind a minute because I don't want you to skip sure. over the fact that you're just like, eh, and then I just one day discovered like a random mushroom, like a specific magical mushroom. I mean, 
What do you mean? Like, did you discover a new species of mushroom? Actually, no, but that happens a lot. Actually, so a lot of mushrooms get renamed. Just the time I work with this amazing mushroom cordyceps, I think it's been renamed twice. So I've had three names to work with it in the last under ten years with this one mushroom alone. So mushrooms get named all the time. They get discovered all the time. So that's not that crazy. But obviously, it's done by people who've dedicated their whole life to.、Uh, Mycology, and in this case, it was a mushroom that people knew. It was actually a very prestigious mushroom, this machutake mushroom that at that time was believed to only grow in this one island in Japan, and the Japanese consider it one of their most prestigious foods. So it's extremely expensive. There's another variety in North America of it that grows, but this particular Hokkaido machutake is is like essentially like expensive truffle for the Japanese. And the climate where I grew up and my college friend grew up is very similar to Hokkaido, and、uh, Yeah, that kind of led us as a joke. To I'm fully honest, like we did not like take it seriously as a joke, quote unquote, discover this mushroom and enter this innovation contest. And actually, it got validated after that. So we didn't run the business. We kind of、uh, donated for the universities to manage it. But I believe still today there are people selling this machutake mushroom to、uh, to most of the Japanese market out of Finland. Wow, that's really interesting. So. Why mushrooms? Why should we be interested? I mean, normally people are, you know, just looking at that those straight up mushrooms. Maybe people are adventuring into portobello over the years, or some, you know, cremini mushrooms, I guess. And those are kind of the simple ones you see at the store, and we know what they taste like, and people like or don't like. But it's not about necessarily eating mushrooms. You know, in your company and what you do, you're dispersing them in a way that. Not necessarily as mask, but it's not about eating and cooking. It's it's necessarily it's a supplement, and so. Why would we start down that path? What can mushrooms do for our health? Before I answer specifically on these mushrooms that I've kind of have the biggest passion for, which are these medicinal mushrooms or tree mushrooms, mushrooms that grow on trees that have these amazing health benefits, I just want to touch upon the fact of the fungi kingdom. So a lot of people, like you said, think about mushrooms. They think of the portobello mushroom, and some people love it, some people hate it, some are actually allergic to it, and some people find it amazingly good for their health. But it's it's not for everybody, so to say. But it's good to understand that this fungi kingdom is for everybody. So when something is a biological kingdom, be it animals, bacteria, plants, and in this case, fungi, kingdom is such a big thing that there's always some things that will kill you, and there will always be some things that heal you. So there's good bacteria, bad bacteria, good animals, <laughs> bad animals <laughs> from a human point of view. And、yep. and in this case, there's good fungi and bad fungi. There's a lot of fungi that can kill us. Both poisonous, but also molds, be it from mycotoxins to molds in buildings. And then, and then there's Roquefort cheese, which is moldy, and I love it. Correct, <laughs> right? Yeah. For example, wine require the use of fungi, and actually, as we're talking and we're breathing, we're breathing in mushroom spores. So it's not like every person every day will have fungi in their life. Um. So every day, every person will have fungi in their life. And now comes to the point how you can consciously incorporate. The best of the mushrooms into your diet and reap benefits is is understanding that we're actually humans and animals are share almost half of our DNA with fungi. So we used to be evolutionary the same kind of super kingdom, animals and fungi. So you're saying mushrooms have like been evolving as long, right? They're not new on the scene. No, actually. So、um, so mushrooms are now all the rage. So I guess that's one of the reasons why we're having this conversation is that a lot of people have <laughs> seen them on Instagram. They're the talk of the town. Everybody's like, oh. Oh, hey, listen. I I talked to some people that were microdosing psilocybin for just general well-being feelings and not you know hallucinating. And I was like, what? I haven't heard about. 
people doing that for, like, I mean, you know, so on all levels, I agree with you. It's quite the popular topic. It is definitely the year of the mushroom. I have to admit that. And working uh, quite a while with them, I have, I'm, I'm very happy about it. At the same time, I sometimes get these questions, you know, from journalists or somebody's like, eh, isn't this a y- yet another health fad? Is that aren't these fungi going away soon? And I'm like, well, maybe they've, uh, you know, they've only been here 1.3 billion years. And they, they were the first thing to come from the ocean to the dry land. And for the first 600 million years before nothing else grew on the dry land, they were eating rocks. They've survived all kinds of catastrophes this earth has suffered from, you know, they can survive without the sun. So whenever there's been a meteorite and the meteorite has caught debris and all the plants have died, the mushrooms have survived and taken over the world. So they're, they're not a new thing. They're, <laughs> hey, they're welcome to come in and, you know, fix our, our government issues right now if they'd like. <laughs> yeah. What else can we use mushrooms well, for? I mean, honestly, I actually think that that's part of the, when we'll get to the medicinal mushrooms, I think that there is actually an opportunity how mushrooms can, not to sound too woo-woo, but raise the consciousness and help people make better decisions. But to that point is that um, anything from even the original primal person, the Otzi Iceman that they found in Austrian Alps, frozen in ice would have these medicinal mushrooms, particularly these mushrooms that grow on trees. So a lot of people only think that mushrooms grow only on the ground. But some of the best mushrooms actually grow on trees. You know, only maybe one or two poisonous tree mushrooms are really- Where in the world are mushrooms on trees? Everywhere. Oh, really? Mushrooms are, also tree mushrooms, are extremophiles. They can live in Antarctica. They can live in the Sahara Desert. They can live in the nuclear reactor of Chernobyl. Obviously, because they're extremophiles, they like- for example, extreme cold. So extreme extremophiles, that's like a, <laughs> they're extremophobes kind of. Yeah, well, actually, um, a lot of the world's most nutrient-dense foods live in one of the two extremes. One, that they have almost no nutrients and they've built survival mechanisms to survive. So this is a lot of your adaptogenic herbs, for example. Right, like rhodiola and other things that are surviving in the Siberian, you know. Like to- a lot of these mushrooms come from Siberia, especially like probably the one of the most hyped mushroom right now, chaga mushroom that lowers inflammation, helps with your skin health and has a lot of, a lot of antioxidants and minerals that grows in Siberia widely. So, but they also can grow, a lot of the healthiest foods grow in very tropical, biodiverse places, uh, Kwai, Hawaii or Costa Rica or somewhere where there's a lot of birds, a lot of different species. There's no monocrops. There's no acres and acres, just a banana, but there's a mix of banana and cacao and tobacco and papaya and mango. And usually in these one of these two extremes, you find foods that are extremely healing and extremely nutrient-dense. And the mushrooms tend to be, they like more of the extremes and then they survive and build all these health benefits to them. So That's really fascinating. And I guess, I mean, obviously the answer would be ever since the dawn of time maybe, but when's the first sort of recorded you know, use where people were actively using fungi in a medicinal way? That's a very good question because there's a, a lot of very, very, very old cave paintings with fungi clearly on it. Now, some people might say that that's because of the psychedelic type of mushrooms. Or, or were they running away from it like, warning, don't eat that mushroom? Because <laughs> No, uh, based on these cave paintings, they had a, some kind of a special relationship with them. So, But some people say it's because of um, the psychedelic. Some people say, but we know... What we know is the Iceman, which is uh, 5,300 years ago, he had medicinal mushrooms. 
And what we know also very well documented is obviously the Chinese who yeah. are not, they don't, their herbalistic system is not better than any uh, other herbalistic system from the North American to this Amazonian, but they were just very good at documenting. So after all, they invented the printing press. So they documented really well. And uh, the original traditional Chinese medicine book listed these hundreds of plants and fungi and to their health benefits, where they help and how they help and then rank them, which one is the best. And the number one was the reishi mushroom. So maybe Utsi 5,300 years ago, and then uh, followed by maybe the Chinese about 2,000 years ago. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I remember going to uh, a series of rounds of acupuncture with uh, acupuncturists who had been like the head of the gynecological surgery department in Shanghai. And she, all she did was specialize in just females and women's health and women's everything from, you know, getting pregnant to all that stuff. And every time she was just adamant about not doing like the easy mixing stuff in terms of like taking herbal pills or pills, she was really a fan of like boiling it down and doing it the old school way. And in every bag her and her husband concocted for me, I'd always look in there and there are always sorts of random mushroom situations going on there. Like I was like, I don't even want to know. <laughs> what those are, but obviously they actually really worked. Um, whatever she did worked. So I, I believe in, I've believed in it ever since. You know what I mean? And uh, looking at this bag, boiling these awful herbs. Sometimes they don't smell good, you know, with the mushrooms in it. And uh, I mean, it, it was miraculous what what had happened. So ever since then, I'm always like, hmm, you know. And but there's never been really products out there that a company that's made it as user-friendly and accessible as yours have. What are some of the main uses? Like, what would you call out and say, hey, if you have this going on right now, you could really probably benefit from fungi? It's You're actually making a great point. So whenever you get excited about anything new in life, it's often easy to say like, oh, there's so much information out there. And sometimes even it's contradicting information. Where do I start? And in fungi, trust me, you do not need to become a mushroom expert or forger. You do not need to learn 22 different kinds of fungi. I mean, it's enough that you learn two, you know, to get going. Or maybe if you feel more adventurous, four. And some of the benefits that mushrooms are shown for. Now, granted, I'm not a doctor and I don't try to behave like one. But if you go to PubMed or... Um, even research on our website of, of clinical studies. Mushrooms are among the most studied whole foods in the world. About 40% of pharmaceuticals are, de are derived from fungi. So there's a, quite a lot of research on them. So, And the main categories of research, partly because of funding, are related to immune system, which is one of the most unsexy elements, but people only focus usually on it when they're sick. But some people also have a, a too high immune system when they have these, for example, autoimmune disorders or allergies. And some of the best immunosuppressions on the market are utilized from these fun, uh, derived from these fungi. So they do what is called immunomodulation. So if your immune system is weak or if it's too high, it will help balance it. So that's one benefit is anybody who's suffering from either way of immune system issues. Second one is blood sugar. Uh, they're very pretty widely studied for um, blood sugar management. Some of them are even used for people who have diabetes to support this blood sugar absorption, uh, cholesterol. These are the areas, obviously, where there's a lot of funding. Uh, from a person who's already healthy, I would say that some of the interesting benefits of mushrooms is lowering inflammation, great, especially for like travel, if you exercise a lot, brain function, there's a great mushroom called lion's mane for that, uh, st possible stress reduction. These couple of these mushrooms are very strong adaptogens. Cordyceps and reishi, 
yeah, I would say those are just a few reasons why people would use mushrooms even if you're healthy. All right. So how do we know that there's not going to be some random little bit of a crazy poisonous mushroom somewhere? You know, I think people get, you know, freaked out about those stories they've heard over the years about like someone going mushroom picking and then there's no antidote and they're dead, you know what I mean? Or something like that. So I guess just what's the process of you know, how you go through that to make sure everything's perfect or you're not even going near those types of elements where it's never a cross-contamination issue. So the good news is that governments, even though people love to hate them, they have a pretty um, sophisticated food safety system. We actually started in Europe and European Union has a an extremely strict system where you have to, FDA as well, to um, qualify for certain parametrics. And even in at FDA, um, they classify food certain way. Our foods are considered a food, not actually a supplement. They're generally regarded as safe. So that's one. And then we test every batch for both for efficacies. So do they actually work? Do they have the active compounds that they were supposed to have? Are they pure? Do they have pesticides, heavy metals, and microbiological quality? Do they have E. coli? All this kind of stuff. And to your question, do how do we know that it's actually the thing? Besides DNA testing, what what you can actually also do, you know, there's different certificates that you can get to prove that the food is actually what it is said to be. But I would say that in today's world, food safety, generally speaking, is pretty good. Um, obviously, there are companies who exploit that occasionally, and there are fillers, and in the mushroom industry as well, there's a lot of mushroom products on the market that are not mushroom products. They're actually mycelium products that are grown on grains. So I meet all the time people who are primal or paleo or however they want to classify, gluten intolerant. And they're like, yeah, I've taken mushroom products. I read all this research online. It's so compelling. I want to use it. My friends told me it's great. I bought this brand, got so sick. My stomach was hurting. And I was like, which brand was this? And then I was like, oh, that's not actually a mushroom product. Because when we talk about mushroom, we talk about the fruiting body part of the mushroom. And they've been eating the roots that have been grown on grains. And 50 to 70% of the product might be grains. Ooh, that's something to know. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't know that. And so they're, all, they're not all created equal. And actually, that's just why I asked you about the quality. Because I know you guys are pure and to the point with your products and what you have in them. And that's really nice to hear you're not putting in fillers or using the roots. I mean, nobody wants that, especially someone who obviously would be intolerant. That could be a nightmare. Yeah, and they uh, mushrooms don't naturally have starch. And some of these products that then are grown on grains, they do have quite a lot of starch. So even if you're not, you don't have an allergy issue, some people just don't deal that well with starch. And obviously some people follow a diet where you avoid starches. And, and mushrooms are you know, um, they're paleo and they're vegan and they're starch free and there's all these benefits. They should be hypoallergenic, these medicinal mushrooms, but when they're grown in certain ways, they might cause digestive distress to certain people. What are the mechanisms by which, or can you explain the process of how a particular fungi can help in terms of insulin resistance, pre-diabetic situations where people are like, okay, now I need to adjust my diet down for this. And then they either take some other supplements, you know, to aid in the process of glucose or, you know, and in the goal of becoming more insulin sensitive. So then you mentioned, you know, earlier about diabetes and, you know, blood sugar. So that's just such a huge thing right now. So if you could just go through that and touch on that, I think that would be really valuable because what a huge nightmare it is in our country with type 2 diabetes. And even myself was pre-diabetic. 
you know, it, it, at one point it can happen to anybody. So um, I would love you to talk about the benefits there. Yeah. We know quite a lot about mushrooms, certain things we're still discovering. So I'm, um, I'm, I don't want to get it too sciencey here, but I'll start with mushroom that is probably the most talked about for blood sugar management. That's maitake, M-A-I-T-A-K-E. In the U.S., also sometimes known as hen of the woods. So some people who live in the Northeast might know this from farmer's markets. A very delicious mushroom. It's actually a very, quite the culinary treat. And maitake specifically is known for people who want to balance their blood sugar. And it's shown to be an alpha-glucosidase inhibitor. So essentially, it means that it just helps slow down the release of any kinds of carbohydrates. And through that, most likely, helps balance blood sugar. Sometimes when we talk about whole foods that have 200 active compounds, it's sometimes a little difficult to know which one is the actual active compound. And why I bring my talk as well is that there's also research showing is that the whole food works better than the isolated version of this compound that is thought to be the bioactive chemical. So sometimes actually, even though we don't know what's the active compound, we have studies that show that you should still have the whole food and have all those things together. So that's one is an example of blood sugar management with maitake and the slower release of carbohydrates. The most talked about if you're really into the science part of things and you want to Google down and you don't want to trust this odd Finnish fungi, (laughs) there's a category of um, compounds that are actually probably among the most studied compounds in the world for human health that are very, very high in mushrooms. Actually, probably mushrooms are one of the only places where they come in very high amounts and they're called polysaccharides, so many sugars. And um, no worries if you're keto or something like that, you can definitely have these. We're talking an extremely complex carbohydrate group and especially among these polysaccharides, there's these beta glucans. And don't let the odd name scare you. They're extremely well studied. And if you just Google beta glucans or polysaccharides and mushrooms, you're gonna find abundance abundance of research and what they can do for blood sugar, immunity, uh, cholesterol uh, with different mushrooms. And I can, obviously, I can talk a little bit how they work if, if you want, but that's probably the category where if you want to understand how they function, it's good to learn more about polysaccharides and beta-D-glucans. And that's uh, beta-D-G-L-U-C-A-N-S for people that might have a hard time understanding your accent. <laughs> Because I was like, mm, I was like thinking to myself, I was like, ah, oh, I think some people might, might misunderstand that one. Um, no, 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 that's great. That's really interesting. It's so, so now what also too, is this like every day? Is this a cycling type of thing? So I already diluted that they're not a supplement, but they're a food. So I'll give an anecdote how to compare and how to look at some of these medicinal mushrooms, even though people, the name medicinal sometimes scares people, even though it shouldn't. But these superfood mushrooms, if that's a better word. Uh, to look at them almost like dark leafy greens. Like you shouldn't eat kale every day. You shouldn't eat spinach every day. You shouldn't eat nettle, dandelion every day. But it's probably pretty good to have some kind of dark leafy greens in some form every day or multiple days of the week. And the same way as these dark leafy greens have this miracle compound, chlorophyll, which is so close to our blood that does all these amazing stuff when you start to read about chlorophylls effect on human health, same way as these mushrooms have these polysaccharides, and same way as all dark leafy greens have chlorophyll, 
all these medicinal mushrooms have these polysaccharides, but they have slightly different mineral contents and other active compounds such as terpenes that some people are familiar, for example, through medicinal marijuana and other eucalyptus where terpenes are often talked about. So mushrooms, some of the mushrooms also have these terpenes. So think of them like dark leafy greens. It's good to have a little bit of every day. Some people will want to get a really high dose in a shorter time period, more therapeutically. That's fine. Then you might want to cycle. But uh, what I recommend is having every day, once or twice, some of these mushrooms and varying their kind. So shiitake one day and chaga the other day and maitake the other day and cordyceps the other day. That's kind of what I suggest. And rotating this, you know, maybe the four or if you're really adventurous, top eight of the mushrooms on uh, throughout the year. I like that idea of the rotating or every day kind of switching it up. I feel the same way about the veggies as you do on that level. Let's talk about your website because you offer something really interesting. You offer like a little free mushroom academy that's, you know, people can spend some time really getting to understand this. Yeah. So as, as you might imagine, when you are a mushroom guy and you talk about the benefits of mushrooms and, and you advocate of drinking of mushrooms, sometimes people give you the odd eye, you know, like, what are you saying? What are you doing? And, and I've had this conversation in a shorter form with thousands and thousands of people. And at one point, people were like, yeah, why don't you just make like a e-learning course? And obviously, technology has made it so much easier. So we, yeah, why not? So we created Mushroom Academy that currently has three levels, each teaching about four mushrooms. Every level is more advanced than the previous one. And it's 100% free. It's uh, focused on just a general understanding of the fungi kingdom and then to make it actionable talking about a few of very specific mushrooms as well. But it's more about just general awareness about what are fungi, some of the stuff we discovered here, but obviously going much, much, much further into detail and how they work. And we have a nice community of several thousands of Mushroom Academy users where you can also ask questions and have a conversation afterwards if something is not clear. Like you said, Peter Gugans, when a odd Finnish guy says a word that you don't understand. <laughs> there is a community of like-minded people who are there to support. Because there's obviously, even though we did, every level has, I think, 10 or 12 videos. Um, it's still a lot of the stuff we can fit into. It's not bullet sizable. So people have very specific odd questions and there's people to support and us as well. So Mushroom Academy is, uh, is kind of our way of trying to scale and share free information about mushrooms. You have some really fun products, like you've got little sort of instant kind of coffee mixers, dealios, and then you have just like elixirs, some hot cocoa or cacao, we should say, maybe some blends, like there's one for beauty. There's so many great little products. They're kind of easy and they come in, I mean, everywhere and, you know, they're all over every store I go to, the little individual packets, right? It's just such an easy take and go situation. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you like them. So when, I mean, I started working with them, mushrooms had this amazing research and there's been a lot of people before us, you know, we're standing the shoulders of giants, people who've like dedicated their whole life to mushroom research. So there's never been lack of mushroom understanding and, and even access to some of these mushrooms. It's more been that they're difficult to use and they taste bad. You actually described a perfect scenario as your acupuncturist giving you these gnarly tasting mushrooms. Unfortunately, a lot of these medicinal mushrooms, while good for your health, taste 
not great. It can be a little bit bitter, and I'm, I'm not going to blame it on the mushrooms. There were some other crazy herbs in there that probably weren't, you know, helping the scenario. So good news, herbs and mushrooms work. Bad news, they don't taste great. So, and, and we all know that if, even if you, you don't have to train like a pro athlete, Olympic athlete, if you just do a little bit of every day, and same with nutrition, is like it's it's not really ideal if if you don't have a model that is consistent where you can have consistency on taking them. So that was a problem we wanted to solve. The other problem is that these tree mushrooms are not, they tend to be inedible. It means that we can't eat them. You have to cook them like bone broth. And it's a fairly long process, especially if you do it right, which is called this dual extraction. This is this actual like gold standard of using mushrooms is a very long and complicated process. And most people don't know how the skills, knowledge, or even sometimes access to these mushrooms in their local area, so you have to order them anyway from online. And we wanted to solve those two problems. So we kind of pre-did the whole thing for people, so you can just, it's powder, you pour it in hot water, and boom. And then we combine it with other bitter bitters. So there's pretty much only two bitters that people like widely in, in the US, I guess globally, is coffee and chocolate. So what we made is we used those as as ways to mask the bitter flavors of these powerful healing mushrooms. And actually, in Finland, we drink more coffee than any other nation per capita. We drink on average four cups a day. And and uh, during Second World really? War... Really? Yeah. And in Second World War, when we were attacked by the Germans and the Russians at the same time, we, we didn't get our coffee beans that we love. So we used this chocolate mushroom as a coffee substitute during the Second World War. So that gave the team as well an idea is like, what if we just make uh, this mushroom coffee might be a cool way. So it tastes more or less like coffee and the hot cocoa tastes more or less like your healthy hot chocolate. But we've hidden these mushrooms inside these beverages. And obviously everybody can do their own, give mushrooms a chance and try them and see what you think yourself. But you know, a lot of people think to found a way how they can, through these products, can incorporate them daily to their diet. I want to ask you a couple of things about Finland. It's just kind of fascinating to me. And I think it's such a, a random place. No one really thinks about very often. And it's tucked away and really kind of hiding up there. And one of the things is I had a, a Finnish roommate in college. And I remember hearing this story where her, her mother, daughter, all flew to Finland because the daughter had to get her um, tonsils removed. And then they all flew back and that whole entire deal was cheaper for them to go visit their family than it was for them to go to the hospital down the street in Chicago and get her tonsils removed. And I remember at the time being like, what, how are you telling me that the surgery in Finland costs 50 bucks? Like how, it's just impossible. And I remember her at the time saying, she was like, we don't even really have homeless people in Finland. Like we take care of, everyone's really taken care of. And I was like, oh my gosh, Finland sounds like a lovely place. So I want to ask you, is it sort of that same vibe or have you guys gone downhill? Well, um, I guess the Nordic model for people, for anybody who out there who studied societies, often the Nordic model is brought up as like an ideal scenario. Some people say it's possible because our countries are so small to do it, but it is definitely very, very different from United States. So for example, we have free education for everybody. So it doesn't matter if your dad is a billionaire or a uh, the president of the country, you cannot get into the university unless you pass an entrance exam. But if you pass the entrance exam, then it's free, always free. And you actually get an allowance from the government that will pay for you, help pay you for your rent. So almost get a salary to go to school. And then um, healthcare is free. And there's some very, very, very tiny admin fees. Um, a friend of mine, 
Um, his wife got cancer, unfortunately, and now she's doing a lot better, but this is a couple of years ago. And I believe that the, all the treatments and all that costed throughout 12 months costed them 50 euros, which is about, I think, like $55. <laughs> I'm like crying for all of the families in the U.S. right now. It's not an insurance thing. It's a government thing. So No, I agree. Yeah. So there's a lot of that kind of things that um, there's not really homeless people. It's also a very ethical aspect because... Think of Finland almost like Alaska. It's not very ethical to have homeless people outside considering the rough winters. We have very beautiful summers, but the winters can get a little rough. So the government provides actual housing and other benefits for everybody. So Well, we have a lot of cold cities and states, and that is not at all the philosophy. It's so interesting to hear that you know your government's like, oh, well, that's unethical. We live in a cold place. Of course, we're not going to have people on the street. And I'm like, what? There's people in Chicago right now under lower where I could drive, like hating it, freaking, like, you know what I mean? Like such a different scenario. And I love hearing about that contrast because I think it it sounds um, sounds like quite an experience. Well, I think the one that people often ask, like, what's the one lesson that to take away from the Nordic model in Finland? I think it comes to education. I think if uh, the education system is pretty unique. For many, many years, it was in test scoring, the Finnish kids were um, the smartest and they tested best of these OECD countries. So essentially Western countries. Um, we've got now we dropped a couple points down. But for many, many, I think several decades, we were ranked number one. And we have the least amount of homework and least amount of school, actually. We even start school pretty late compared to many other countries. And that's the kind of lesson that you can all... You guys get like how much vacation a year? Um, several months. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. But, uh, for, wait, wait, just when you clarify. So let's say I'm working for a company, I'm supporting my family and blah, 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 my husband, wife, blah, blah. And and then like, what kind of vacation am I getting? Well, you start with four weeks if you're a new employee and then right. you get, that's like the summer vacation. Then you get these uh, plus bank holidays and there's quite a few of them. Then you get um, this winter holiday, depending a little bit what industry you're working for, there's various rules and different things. And you can start to get a winter holiday. So it might be another, uh, you know, two to three weeks um, for that. It really kind of depends what kind of job are you doing, but there's there's plenty I think most people would have a couple, really nice. at least, you know, maybe a couple months a year where you can take off and then kids obviously get a lot more. But the, the I think the key point there is, is um, the more is not always better. Sometimes better is better. And uh, I think in American society, it's a, it's a lot about bigger, better, faster. And sometimes, sometimes there is an alternative to it, but it's culturally definitely very different. And it doesn't mean that we're, amazing in all different ways, but it's something to think about, obviously. Is there a particular food or dish or something uh, other than that that you miss about Finland? It's funny, when I was growing up, uh, a lot of the stuff we did and what how we behaved was considered really stupid. And when I was traveling and living in different countries, people often rolled their eyes on everything we did. And, 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 and every year, <laughs> something Nordic becomes the craziest hype and right now for example the whole Wim Hof breathing and the ice swimming right. is like everybody's talking about sauna and going to an ice bath and I'm like yeah that's what kind of we've always done same with cuisine is for the longest time everybody in Europe that's funny you're like yeah that's old news I've been doing that since I was three like ice baths yeah they'll do got it though. <laughs> check <laughs> so the same with cuisine we were often the laughing stock of of culinary especially the Finnish we were uh um, everybody laughed that we have the worst food. 
And then a few years ago, then Nordic food really blew up, um, especially through Noma, the former or one of the former top restaurants, El Bulli in Barcelona kind of went bankrupt. And there was a there was a new restaurants emerging. And one of these was Noma in, in Denmark. And it really opened up a lot of high culinary people's vibes to the seasonal eating that uh, Nordic people do. And also a lot of like all things that we do, including foraging. And through a lot of those foods is also my, some of my favorite foods. So there's a lot of berries I miss, cloud berries, um, wild raspberries. Uh, my mom makes an amazing wild raspberry pie. Um, I miss this, some of the salmon. So there's certain ways how we prepare salmon that I particularly love that is um, pretty excellent. So, And then we have this thing called Karelian pie. Not really a pie, but Karelian pie that is made out of using rice and there is... I like to put uh, butter on top, and that's probably my favorite. So first thing I get to the country, I usually go get this really good Karelian pie with butter, and I eat it. That's probably one of my favorites. I love that about certain places where you're like, the moment I get off the plane, I'm going right there. It's going to be my first meal. <laughs> yeah. That's so fun. And um, rain, reindeer, obviously, is is the thing that most people who visit for the first time want to try is, oh. how does Rudolph taste? <laughs> Uh, well, hey, people on our podcast uh, be like, that's great. Tastes great. Bring it. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I also saw that there was a, in Paleo Magazine a while ago, I saw there was a restaurant in Copenhagen like called Primal. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I want to go there because my, my stepfather's Danish and I uh, would like love to check that out at some point. Yeah. Um, and there are definitely a lot of Primal stuff um, in Scandinavia. Obviously, that one I think was maybe the first, I think might have been the first like Paleo Primal place in all of the world, actually. I'm not, I could be wrong. Yeah. It was sort of one of those first, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Extremely popular as well. So, or at least used to be. So I'm sure it is still. That's good to hear. What else would you like to leave our audience with? I mean, the big message I, I try to tell people is just give mushrooms a chance. So even though there are mushrooms you might not like, or the mushrooms you've so far tried, doesn't mean that the whole fungi kingdom is not great. So maybe joining the Mushroom Academy and spending if you do all the three levels, it's only three hours. And so you can only do, for example, the first one and just going through a few of the videos to understand better what fungi can do and how they actually impact everything in the world. Even we have an episode on the environmental aspects, how fungi can eat plastic and uh, clean oil spills and other things like that. So for that, those kind of reasons alone, it might be fun to learn more about fungi. Fascinating. And then visit Scandinavia. <laughs> yeah, this this has turned into an ad advertisement for Scandinavia. <laughs> I need to get money from the tourism board now. This became such a good ad. So, uh, <sighs> Aurelia Borealis, the Nordic Lights. Um, the Finland is the land of thousands of lakes. We have a hundred thousand plus lakes. A million different types of herring. <laughs> yeah, you'll never ever have <laughs> a shortage of herring. I think if you want to go to one place, I would say Iceland and Norway are probably the most beautiful as nature. But all the Nordic countries, so Denmark, Sweden, and Finland as well, are worth a visit. So if you get the chance, come try something fairly exotic but safe and nice and. Uh, and it's not that far for a lot of people. You can actually fly. Yeah, it's one of the least riskiest places to visit as an American right now, like in the world. <laughs> it's basically the places you mentioned. Unless you don't like herring and, uh, and a lot of people have also drink vodka and go to sauna. So those are the riskiest things you can probably do there, jump into a frozen <laughs> lake. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing it. Again, we'll put all the links in the show notes, but for people that want to jump on the website and check out what you have, foursigmatic.com. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. So much for having me. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. 
and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.